Hey, Climate Conscious listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to the C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can check out videos, podcasts, and more at climateone.org. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. California has committed to getting one half of its electricity from renewable sources by the year 2030. But clean energy advocates say that goal is too modest. 50% renewable is just barely on the edge of being consistent with what scientists tell us we need to do to keep the impact of climate change at a manageable level. Smart technology and the Internet of Things are making more ambitious clean power goals possible sooner. A mesh network where solar panels around the country can be used to give us sustainable power with other forms of energy in a way that we've never done before. A decentralized network has other advantages as well. If you've got millions of solar panels or tens of millions of small microgenerators, if one of them fails, the consequence of that failure is much smaller. Can our connected lives be green and safe? Up next on Climate One. Can California get to 100% clean power? Can the Internet of Things be green and safe? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. California has committed to getting one half of its electricity from renewable sources by the year 2030, making its economy one of the cleanest in the country. But clean energy advocates say Governor Jerry Brown and the California legislature could be more ambitious and shoot for 100% clean electricity, which would more effectively fight the climate disruption that is amplifying droughts, floods, and fires around the state and country and threatening our way of life. But not everyone agrees on how the existing energy grid can integrate new technologies, or whether getting to 100% is even technically possible yet. So how ambitious should California and other states be in their clean power goals? Joining Greg today are three people deeply involved in this debate. Mark Farron is a member of the California Independent System Operator, the agency that runs the electric grid that powers just about everything with a plug and an on-off switch. He's a former member of the California Public Utilities Commission. And disclosure, he's a donor to Climate One. Mark Jacobson is Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Stanford. He's on the board of the Solutions Project, a group advocating for 100% clean energy across America. The group is backed by Google Chairman Eric Schmidt's Family Foundation and actor-activists Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Ruffalo. And Steve Malnight is Senior Vice President at Pacific Gas and Electric, or PG&E, California's largest electric utility. Here's Greg talking about the push for 100% clean power in California and beyond. Mark Jacobson, 100%, it sounds like a big, hairy, audacious goal. Tell us how California could get there. Well, we've been developing plans for states, all 50 states, in fact, and now 139 countries, and California in particular. And and these plans are to convert each state to 100% renewable energy, not only for electricity, but also transportation, heating, cooling, industry, agriculture, forestry, and fishing. And the idea is to electrify everything. If you electrify everything, the first thing that happens is you reduce power demand. In California, that's about 44% reduction of power demand. And that's because electricity is much more efficient than combustion. So for example, an electric car, it's 80 to 86% of the electricity goes to move the car and the rest is waste heat. In a gasoline car, only 17 to 20% of the energy in gasoline goes to move the car and the rest is waste heat. But you not only reduce uh, power demand by converting to electricity uh, due to the efficiency of electricity, but also because you no longer have to mine and refine and transport fossil fuels, there's a, an energy reduction there as well. And there's induced energy efficiency improvements. In California, that's 44% reduction of power demand by electrifying. And then you provide all that electricity with clean, renewable wind, water, and solar, onshore and offshore wind, solar rooftop PV, and power plant PV, photovoltaics that is, concentrated solar power with storage, some geothermal power, uh, existing hydroelectric power, and small amounts of tidal and wave. And we found that you can do this in California, use 
less than a, a half a percent of the state's land area for what we call footprint on the ground, for mostly for solar at the utility scale, and about one and a half percent of the land area for wind, onshore wind, and we can power the entire state at a similar or lower direct cost, but we'd re reduce the social cost or the health and climate cost by about 60% uh, for Californians and create jobs in the process and uh, create energy stability forever. Steve Melnight, you're in the electrical business, electrify everything, you probably agree with that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, how about the, the, the other part of that it can be done at 100% is doable and fairly soon? Well, I think it definitely meets the definition of a big, hairy, audacious goal, um, a BAG for all of us. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it is the right kind of thing for us to be talking about, to set out those aggressive goals. We've, um, I think we've been uh, very supportive of that. And in, when you look at the electric sector today, you're already seeing a transformation happening in the electric sector today with, uh, with the 30% renewables and, that we deliver, 50% uh, GHG-free. That's, that's only increasing over time. It's getting cleaner and cleaner. Uh, that can be done. The question at the end of the day is, how do we make sure we're achieving the climate goal that we really have straight and center in front of us? And you know, I think, Mark, your, your point is, we can't just look at the electric sector today. In California, that's really only about 20% of the emissions. 80% you know, of, of the carbon emissions in the state are from all the other sectors outside of the electric sector. We've got to make sure we address transportation. We've got to make sure we can address the industrial uses. Um, and those really are the biggest challenges we have in front of us today. But the point is we've got to keep making the progress. Mark Fair and the, the utilities always say, oh, it's going to be hard, it's going to take longer, but they, they oftentimes get to those goals faster uh, than, than people anticipated five years ago. So what do you think about 100% by 2050? Well, I, I think uh, uh, I agree with, with Mark that uh, that's the kind of goal that we, we should be setting out. Um, but it is, uh, it is a complicated uh, exercise. Uh, so I think we have... Um, like Steve, we have, we, uh, have focused very much on the near-term goal, which is uh, the 2030 50% uh, renewable portfolio standard. And uh, I'm very confident that we're going we're to uh, meet that. In fact, uh, I expect that we should, we should beat that. Whether it's 55 or 60% uh, is not clear. Um, but I think that's really, we have to put it in the context, that is essential if we're going to get to what we need to do in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So 50% um, renewable is just barely on the edge of being consistent with a 40% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2030 from the 1990 levels, which is what, what scientists tell us we need to do to, to, to keep uh, the, the impact of climate change at a, at a manageable level. Um, now going beyond that gets much more difficult. And uh, it's because um, we are very reliant on fossil fuels, in California in particular, natural gas, for um, making up for the intermittency and the variability of renewables. And that is a tricky engineering exercise to, to, uh, to get around. So as, if you think about, if you do the math, 50% renewable energy plus hydro, et cetera, you get to somewhere around 25% natural gas, which is very low. And going below that, um, really does raise some questions about reliability of the system. Mark Jacobson, the sun doesn't shine at night, the wind uh, doesn't really blow in the day, so the renewable power is not always there. We, to run the economy of this state, we need electricity always there. What's your solution to that? Yeah, well, we've solved that problem in theory because when you electrify all sectors, you suddenly, have, everything is electricity, including heating, cooling, industry. And so you can now use heat storage, which is low cost, and cold storage to reduce electricity use. For example, Stanford University, the university I work at, they've had an ice cube under a building since 1998. So at night, when electricity prices are low, they use the electricity to create ice. So that during the day, instead of using electricity during peak times of the day in the afternoon, they run water th through tubes in the ice and cools the water that, use, that was used to cool buildings, so they reduce peak time electricity demand. You can, and in fact, there was a, another example was there was a, a natural gas plant literally outside my office until last April when it was bulldozed. And Stanford University, got, that gas plant was providing 80% of the electricity and heat for the university. It's gone now. It was replaced with two boilers and a chiller and an elaborate piping system. And then the remaining electricity was uh, obtained from solar. And the pipe, what the boilers and chillers did was whenever you create hot, you produce cold, and whenever you create cold, you produce hot waste, and usually the opposite is wasted. So if you actually capture the waste heat and the waste cold and use it, you reduce 
your demand significantly. It's really ideas like this, where you combine heat and cold and with electricity, low cost electricity storage in uh, pumped hydroelectric power, existing hydroelectric power is big battery, concentrated solar power is one-tenth the cost of batteries, and then in using other types of heat storage, such as in rocks, which is only a dollar a kilowatt hour compared to $300 a kilowatt hour for batteries, you can actually solve the problem. We showed this over the whole United States. We did a paper that was published uh, last year in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, where we examined, is it possible for, with 100% power for all sectors, being clean renewables in the whole US, is it possible to keep the grid stable? And we found that it was at a cost similar to the cost of fossil fuels. Mark Farron, you're part of the organization that runs the grid, has to manage all these electrons moving every which way every day, really complicated yeah. job. How do you see uh, new entrants and new competition? There's a lot more consumer choice now. We did, used to didn't have a choice. Customer choice is coming to this market. Is that gonna drive it to a cleaner market? Well, um, I, as, a, as a former regulator, um, I, I think looking at more uh, consumer choice uh, is a headache because it makes it more complicated. It's, it is, it is uh, much simpler to regulate a market that comprises three regional monopolies. And uh, that's the state of play now in, in California, but being eroded by uh, community choice, which is coming uh, across the state. Now, personally, I believe that uh, consumer choice can only be a good thing. And uh, what we are seeing increasingly in, in uh, communities that are looking at this as an option is they want cleaner energy than what's available on the grid. And uh, uh, so I'm a customer of Marin Clean Energy and I run my electric car in 100% uh, clean energy. And uh, that's a choice I make. I pay a, an extra penny a kilowatt hour to do that. Uh, but that's, uh, I love having that option. And it's interesting as, as you look at what's emerging across the state, there's some really very interesting, innovative work going on at the local community level. And one of the things that we're trying to do at the California Independent System Operator is tap into that and, and allow um, third parties who have um, various renewable assets on the grid to aggregate those assets together and bid them into the wholesale market. So we are uh, actively encouraging another route for renewable resources to get onto the grid. We did a poll on Twitter today. Uh, do you think California already has the technology needed to get to 100% clean power? 250 votes split 50-50. Half the people think we need more technology. Half the people think we have all we need. Steve Malnight, which is it? Do we have everything we need? We've got to deploy it, or do you have to create new innovation? No, I think we need new innovation. I think, you know, even as Mark alluded to, I think there's a lot of uh, things that sit in the theory today that are very promising, um, but I think we've got to prove them out and understand the complexity of actually integrating these things onto the grid and how you run the system to make sure we maintain the reliability that we need. Mark Jacobson, where does the new innovation need to happen? Where, where are the big breakthroughs that you see that need to happen to get to 100%? Well, let me preface it. I think with existing technology, if you deploy it, you'll get new innovation along the way because deployment drops the cost, there's more money available for research and so you can then, but we do not need a miracle new technology. So it's maybe fine tuning existing technologies, using them on larger scales, especially these storage technologies that are really used in a lot of example places, but we've never had a need for these large scale clean renewable energy storage before. But I think that the biggest barriers, if you're asking that, are really practical things like zoning for long distance transmission, uh, getting offshore wind, floating offshore wind turbines. I mean, once you have floating offshore wind turbines commercialized, then the game is over because there's just endless amounts of offshore wind on the West Coast, East Coast, US, and around the world. So I think it's really deployment that will generate more uh, improvements of technologies, plus some uh, better policies that will put in place to speed up certain things like floating turbines and, and long distance high voltage direct current transmission. Mark Farron, you've worked in Silicon Valley in, in innovation. You've worked in Sacramento in, in regulation. Uh, what's the role of government and in, in, in private companies in, in driving this innovation that we're talking about? Well, um, I think the role of government is, is to set the rules, make them as clear as possible, and then try to get out of the way and let the innovation happen. Um, I think that's really the fastest way for, for this to come about. And, and just to, to, to dovetail what, uh, what Mark was just saying, I think there is, um, there's really not a need for some 
giant miracle breakthrough in the hardware space. I think the, the hard technology that we have around electricity generation, of course there are improvements that are happening all the time. Uh, wind turbines are getting more and more efficient, et cetera. But the basics of that, I think, are, are largely well understood. It's the soft stuff. It's the software piece of this. It's how it knits together, how it's integrated, how it's managed. I think that's the biggest obstacle, and I think that's where the biggest dividend will come in. And uh, I mean, the good news in all that is that is the, in a sense, the specialty of Silicon Valley. And so, uh, on that, on those grounds, uh, I'm quite optimistic that as we lay the foundation from a policy standpoint, and we get more hardware um, in the ground, as it were, um, and people begin to work on ways to uh, optimize that, to make it more efficient, to make it more resilient, uh, I think we're gonna see some real dividends. We're hearing about California's push for 100% clean energy at Climate One. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. Welcome back to Climate One. We're talking about the push for 100% clean power with energy regulator Mark Farron, Steve Malnight, Senior Vice President at California's largest electric utility, and Mark Jacobson, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Stanford. Here's our host, Greg Dalton. Mark Jacobson, I want to talk about equity because there's a concern that push to 100, that green costs more, and there's cost shifting that's going to happen, and certain people are going to get uh, an unfair burden that electric cars, electric uh, solar panels are for the kind of the, the coastal urban elite, and other people are getting shafted. Well, first of all, you know, in California, 13,000 people die of air pollution every year, and this costs the state a huge amount of money. I mean, worldwide, there are four to seven million people die every year from air pollution. It costs the world $25 trillion per year. It's equivalent to about 10 cents per kilowatt hour in the health costs and 10 to 15 cents. And the climate costs are from fossil fuel combustion are another uh, between 10 and 15 cents per kilowatt hour. And they're growing. So if you, you know, every every bit of air pollution you can reduce in the state of California or worldwide, you're saving health and climate costs, which we all bear in terms of higher taxes, higher insurance rates, higher workman's compensation rates, lost work days, lost school days, lost productivity in work. And so these are costs that everybody's paying, but are really um, subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. So you know, they have to look, we have to really count these costs in addition to the direct costs. When we look at transitioning the energy infrastructure of of the United States, including California, we find that the direct cost of energy, when you account for this additional storage you need, the additional long distance transmission, is similar to the fossil fuel direct costs, but you eliminate the health and climate costs. So you reduce the total social cost, which is direct plus health plus climate costs. Social cost is the total overall cost. Reduce the social cost of energy by 60% by electrifying everything, including transportation. So there's no way you can possibly lose. And some people will say even if you have an electric car, well, what if the, you're getting the electricity from grid electricity that's coal and gas? The fact is you're still reducing health problems because what's called the intake fraction of pollution is 30 times higher from vehicle exhaust than power plant exhaust. So in other words, if you take emissions off the street, you're reducing what people in, breathe in, factor of 30 compared to if you had those same emissions from a power plant. And so you really can't lose in terms of both the costs and people's health and their length of life. We are gonna to go to audience questions at Climate One. Hi, this is Jessica Lamb from ClimateWorks Foundation. Given that uh, grid energy mix, policy incentives, and utility business models will look different under a near-term 50% renewable energy scenario versus 100%, um, could you speak to what is being done or could be done to ensure compatibility between those two scenarios so that we ensure what we're doing now in the near and mid-term will be compatible or sort of a glide path for that future 100% renewable energy goal? Mark Farron? I'm, 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 I, yeah, um, I have to say that's one of my biggest concerns about, um, you know, our, because we are investing a, a huge amount in, uh, in the grid, and it's really essential that we look hard to make sure that we are not digging a deeper hole, that we're not, um, 
you know, we're not gilding uh, the, you know, the, the existing infrastructure and that we're actually building the sort of things that we're gonna need for the grid of the future. So that is, I think, a, a genuine concern. Now, how do we go about that? I think it's really, uh, it comes down to the regulators looking carefully at, at incentives that the utilities have, um, creating an incentive for the utilities, not just to put steel in the ground, to invest in hardware and get a return on that, but also to invest in services that can be provided by third parties and getting a return on those services as well. And I think this is an area where, quite frankly, California is just beginning. Uh, the state of New York has really grabbed onto this in a, in a very impressive way in, in laying out their vision of how regulation is going to work in the 21st century. And I think there are many things that California can learn from the state of New York. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Abby Young with the Bay Area Air Quality Management District. In the San Francisco Bay Area, we have over 65 local governments, cities and counties, that have adopted local climate action plans, and that's more than any other metropolitan area in the country. Um, what is the role of local and regional government to help speed us along this pathway toward 100% clean energy? Mark I'll Jacobson. I'll take that. So, I mean, there are already efforts by cities around the country that have goals to go to 100% renewable energy. So there can't, a city can actually have such a goal and even pass ordinances. So in fact, Palo Alto is thinking of passing an ordinance, they're thinking about it, haven't done this yet, where they actually, all new construction cannot have gas go on their property because you don't need it anymore. So this is something that a city can do if they really want to go to 100%. They can look, in fact, we're working with the city to develop ways to look at all the pollution from every sector and how to get rid of that. And actually, for most things, you can do it. There are existing appliances for everything in your home. There's nobody needs gas in their home. You have induction cooktop stoves, heat pumps for air and water heating, you have electric dryers. What do you need gas for? You don't need it to go in your house. And so you can do this throughout a city. And what do you do about, for example, um, cars from outside the city coming in who are, that are gasoline-powered cars, how do you uh, uh, inhibit those? Well, you don't create parking spots for them. Let's go to our next audience question in Climate One. Hi, Phil Keyes with InterTrust Technologies. Question about the grid. I just, I'd like to understand how far we can get with the current grid by you know, just putting on this layer of communications and computation towards the goal of 100% renewable. And once we've reached that point, what changes to the grid need to be made? Well, I'll just mention something. I mean, if you look at it on a large scale like the whole U.S., you definitely do need upgrades in transmission, particularly long-distance transmission. For example, you know, the best wind resources in the U.S. are offshore the coasts, but also in the Great Plains, which is like the Saudi Arabia of wind. And so you can actually, it's so cheap there, it's two cents a kilowatt hour with the production tax credit now and three and a half without it, that it's actually cheaper to transmit that energy to the East Coast right now than even offshore wind. So upgrading uh, long distance transmission is certainly something that would be beneficial. But so I don't think you should wait till the end to upgrade long distance transmission. I think that should happen now. I should point out though that in Texas, there was an example I just read. In Texas, just like four years ago, 16% of all the wind energy was, uh, was basically not used. It was curtailed because it didn't have enough transmission. And 2015, that dropped to 1%. So instead of wasting 16% of the electricity, only 1% is now because they upgraded the transmission system in just a few years. Let's go to our next question. Hi, I'm Candace Heidwong, and I'm with the League of Women Voters in Berkeley, Albany, and Emeryville. And my concentration is on building energy upgrade, which we have so many homes in California that would have inadequate electrical services, inadequate wiring very expensive to upgrade homes, uh, rental units. It will take probably billions of dollars. So how are we going to work on the users to upgrade? Steve Malnight, a lot of efficiency gains in California, yet the, the best thing you can do before solar is seal your home and, and make it more efficient. But that's not as sexy, and it's, some people don't know how to do it or how to pay for it. Well, it still is vitally important. And I do think we have to, um, to your point, there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be invested in not just the grid itself, but also in our homes, um, as we, we talked about the gas transition earlier as well. Um, we have to look for every available way to get that to happen. Um, we do that through policy. We do that through incentive structures. We do that through creating innovative financing vehicles. 
Um, but we don't want to lose sight of the fact that energy efficiency really should be the first thing we do, is to look at the existing building stock, which is if you know, Wyoming's the Saudi Arabia of wind, I might say existing building stock is the Saudi Arabia of energy efficiency. There is so much opportunity for us to go out and capture uh, better energy efficiency in the existing buildings. We've got we to gotta go after it. Let's go to our last audience question. Hi, I'm Don, and I'm a federal launching coordinator with U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and I believe know what you want, get what you can. So which is best, adjusting the workload and the time people go to work and the time they use power or fixing the grid as you approach your 100% uh, clean power production? I'll, I'll, I'll take that. You, you need to do both. And I think one of the lessons that we've learned as we've had more penetration of renewable variable energy is the demand side of that equation is incredibly important. And uh, so if we can uh, create incentives for people to shift their use, in some cases just a little bit of time, it can dramatically reduce the amount of infrastructure we need to put on the system. So just like we should do energy first, we should also be looking at demand management as, a, as an important tool to change the shape of the load uh, so that we don't necessarily have to overbuild for peaks. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Greg's been talking with Mark Farron, former member of the California Public Utilities Commission, Mark Jacobson, professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford, and Steve Malnight, Senior Vice President at Pacific Gas and Electric. Tell us what your community is doing to promote clean power, and let us know what you think about the program. Leave a comment or write a review on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Climate One. Today's American homes are dotted with internet-connected devices that allow you to manage your home from your smartphone. You can lock your front door if you forgot before you left, adjust your thermostat on your way home, or even spy on your nanny anytime, anywhere. There are smart meters that can send power to the grid from solar panels on your roof, and EV chargers that can juice up your car overnight when electricity is cheap. The so-called Internet of Things can make our lives greener and more convenient. But is a decentralized, internet-dependent energy network more vulnerable to cyber mischief or attack? And how do consumers protect their privacy when every move their house makes goes online? Joining Greg are three experts with deep knowledge of these issues. Retired Army General Keith Alexander was head of the National Security Agency from 2005 to 2014 and chief of the U.S. Cyber Command for four of those years. He's now CEO of a company he founded, IronNet Cybersecurity. Alfred Berkeley served in the U.S. Air Force and was president of the NASDAQ stock market from 1996 to 2000. He's been on the boards of WebEx, Safeguard Scientifics, and several other companies. He's a director of the World Economic Forum USA and co-author of The New Paradigm for Cybersecurity. Dave Mount is partner in the Green Growth Fund of the venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins Caulfield & Byers. He's focused on software and services in the energy sector and serves on the boards of Upwind Solutions and Choose Energy. Here's our conversation about smart technology and the Internet of Things. General Alexander, this connected world where everything's connected to the Internet, that sounds like a hacker's dream. Is it? Well, it's a hacker's dream, but it's also a dream for us as a nation. Uh, when you think about, you know, I was just uh, marveling at this game, Pokemon Go. I don't have it yet. Uh, <laughs> I know my grandchildren. I have 16 grandchildren. They'll say, why not? Um, but when you think about what good is coming out of the Internet, what we, our country, created here, there are some phenomenal things that are going on. And... Just because we're connected doesn't mean we have to forego civil liberties and privacy. I honestly believe we can do both and should do both. And I think that's part of the discussion I know we'll have today. But it also gets us to a point, but what can we do with things like renewable energy and tying things to the grid and some of the orange button things that are going on with bringing solar companies together in a more efficient manner to use uh, these energy things for the good of our country. These are tremendous opportunities. So, you know, hackers, think about numbers. You know, I have four daughters, uh, and hopefully none are listening right now, and they send emails. I don't read all their emails. I, I'm sorry. My wife does. Uh, and I'm a bad father. I have 16 grandchildren. I don't read all their emails. So when you think about just the volume of stuff that's going on, the practicality of it, and you think about the numbers it would take, it would be unrealistic. However, we do need to get the security 
civil liberty privacy right. And one of the reasons I'm here is we've got to inform the American people about what that means, what's going on, and have an informed debate on it. Not one that's sensationalized and inflamed, but one that is informed by the facts. Alfred Berkeley, uh, Silicon Valley, you've been involved with uh, tech companies. Uh, is this just kind of a, uh, remember the segue, some things are going to revolutionize uh, our lives, didn't happen the way Silicon Valley said it was? How do we know that this is for real? Is it not just some hype to sell us more gadgets? Well, it's already changed our lives. We can't economically run this country without connectivity. We have these banking transactions that are going on by the billions, and we don't think a thing of it. And the reason we don't think a thing of it is because they're reliable. They're reliable because they've got a lot of smart people trying to make them resilient. And we have benefited from that so much that we don't even notice it. I want to uh, roll a clip and then we'll get Dave Mount into the discussion. We've surveyed our listeners on Twitter and we asked them the question, do the greeting benefits outweigh the security risks of our ever more connected lives? 60% of the people said that's true. 33% said false, and 7% said there are no risks. So our small group on Twitter, at least, is saying that the benefits outweigh the risks at this point. Uh, Samsung and MasterCard have teamed up on a new fridge that can order groceries from a touchscreen on the appliance. This is just one example of the, how the technology business is working on a smart, connected home. Let's, let's listen. Analysts predict that by 2020, 50 billion things will be connected to the Internet the equivalent of six devices for every person on the planet. That's the power to transform your home into a connected family hub. Experience seamless ordering for multiple merchants, where you can add everyday items to your intelligent card and pay with a single secure checkout. So that's a rosy view of an easy life with a smart refrigerator. Now I want to hear from another view, which is a darker view of how this connected life might play out. And imagine you have a smart house, everything from your lights to your thermostat to your television and water temperature is connected to a smart system. Now imagine that system got hacked and all your devices went haywire at the same time. That's the premise for the season premiere of the TV show, Mr. Robot. Let's listen. Well, what am I supposed to do? I mean, nothing is working. Unplug what? Everything is inside the walls. That's how it was installed when I ordered the Smart House package. Now the alarm is going off. And it's freezing. It's below 40. So that's a woman inside her home where the stereo is going on, the alarm is going off. She's talking to someone saying, my smart home, everything's going haywire at once. Dave Mount, which of those futures is more likely? Are they both, both possible? I think that they are both possible and that the reality of that second video is something that we should be aware of and that we should plan around. And, and I'll explain that a little bit. So to give a little bit of context around numbers, the Samsung video talks about 50 billion connected endpoints. As we think about the current state of the world, there are, there are say, 12, 15 billion connected endpoints today. But in the power sector, in the sector, you know, the energy sector that we're talking about, there are 7,000 power plants in the United States. So we're talking about going from 7,000 power plants to a world of 50 billion connections, or maybe if keeping it in the energy context, 7,000 power plants to 200 million solar panels, or 120 million air conditioners in people's homes. And I think that the challenge becomes if each of those control points are potential vulnerabilities for hackers, uh, it is sort of a, a hacker's dream. I don't <coughs> think it has to be that way, but I, I think that the convenience of that connected home case uh, is exciting, but finding ways to make sure that uh, all those controls can't be switched off at the same time is important. General Alexander, uh, the smart grid, your company is partly uh, aimed at protecting people or companies from that sort of thing. Uh, do you think that uh, someone could really, you know, mischief? I guess there's a difference between a terrorist attack or kind of teenagers, you know, wreaking mischief. How do you think that this uh, smart home, you know, could it really go haywire for Americans? You know, that's exactly what I'm worried about my grandchildren doing to me. <laughs> um, they're, you know, it, it's, it's amazing to see the young people today, how wired they are and what they can do with devices. And I think it's a combination of educating, uplifting, informing. How do we use these in, in, a, in a safe and reliable manner? 
I am more on the first than I am on the second uh, video. I think, you know, yes, people can get in and hack. People can cause problems. We ought to solve that up front and ensure that the first is the benefit, not the second. So having said that, what it also brings into play is for our nation, what we've had for the last few hundred years is we've been secure because of two oceans and hard to get to. And now with the internet, we're connected to the rest of the world. And so there are two threats to our country, terrorism and cyber. And we can solve those. We've got to solve those. And that's you know, one of the big things that the American people have to step up and say, okay, what can we live with? What is the right thing to live with? And what do we put forward? And have that debate. And it ought to be a debate in a democracy that puts all that together. Because at the end of the day, we choose. We choose which way we're going to go. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about energy and security in the age of connected living. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. Welcome back. Greg Dalton is talking about smart technology and the Internet of Things with retired Army General Keith Alexander, former head of the National Security Agency, Alfred Berkeley, director of the World Economic Forum USA and co-author of The New Paradigm for Cybersecurity, and Dave Mount, partner in the Green Growth Fund of the venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins Caulfield & Byers. Here's Greg. We're going to go to our lightning round and ask some uh, brisk questions, uh, single answer questions, uh, starting with Dave Mount. True or false, Alexa, the new speech bot from Amazon, is more useful than Siri. True. Also for Dave Mount, Alexa sent flowers to your wife for you after a recent argument at home. False. So Alexa can listen and watch everything in your home, right? And you don't know exactly yes. what Amazon is listening to. Alexa heard the argument, but I was not, uh, I was not smart enough to ask for her to order flowers <laughs> as well. Alfred Berkeley, the idea of a machine listening and watching everything in your home is a little creepy, yes or no? Yes. Keith Alexander, General Alexander, the possibilities of that excite you. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it, it actually causes me sleepless nights just thinking about that. No offense, Alfred. I mean, Alfred Berkeley, uh, true or false? Venture capitalists are not as smart as they think they are. False. Dave Mount, true or false? Venture capitalists have a terrible track record in the energy sector. True. General Alexander, you enjoy answering questions from guys like me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Alfred Berkeley, the United States has run up huge federal deficits on two wars funded off the national balance sheet and underinvested in infrastructure. Yes. Dave Mount, you are glad data stored on your iPhone is encrypted. True. Alfred Berkeley, the NSA can look at it anyway. True. General Alexander, your former colleagues peeked at my iPhone in preparation for this program. False. Uh, also, for, we didn't have your name. We didn't know you were sitting on it. No, I'm just kidding. Sure. Um, also, for General Alexander, you enjoy Jason Bourne movies. I do. <laughs> In fact, I look amazingly like him. I, <laughs> <laughs> I try to sell that. I know it's not working. They're all the same, but they're still good. He's um, great. Alfred Berkeley, true or false, some cybersecurity companies are hyping the threats of hackers to pump up their business. True. Also for Alfred Berkeley, Stuxnet may come back to haunt the United States. True. Dave Mount, government protection of data held by companies could be considered a form of corporate welfare. True. General Alexander, uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISA Court, is a rubber stamp. False. Last one for General Alexander. Uh, first word that comes to your mind when I say, President Donald Trump overseeing the NSA and CIA. Wow. <laughs> that ends our lightning round. Let's give them a round. Thanks them for that. <laughs> uh, let's talk about some of the celebrated cases. Sony Pictures, Target, the Democratic National uh, Committee, all been hacked, uh, revealing uh, personal data, corporate data. Dave Mount, what, what are the lessons of those celebrated hacks? 
I think that there are probably three. The first is that typically the way in is pretty unsophisticated. Um, the second may be that once in, it is pretty sophisticated. And I'll start there. So the way in on these attacks is typically some sort of phishing. Uh, typically, someone will send an email that they weren't supposed to send, and um, someone will click a link that enables a macro in Microsoft Office, uh, and, and then a piece of bad software will get into a computer network. Or in, in some cases, it will be a USB stick. So typically, it's some unsophisticated person on a network that is compromising the intellectual property, or in fact, in some case, physical assets. Um, so that's unsophisticated first. The second one, and this is maybe uh, a little bit more of a cause for concern for the, for the green grid and the Internet of Things, is once in, I think the attacks are getting more sophisticated. So this is not necessarily as relevant for Target or the DNC, but with Stuxnet, with a, a famous hack that happened in, in the Ukraine in, in December, uh, with another hack that, is, that has happened, uh, there have been several hacks in Germany where basically you get into a piece of equipment with a phony email, a phishing email, or a USB stick, and you can take down multi-million dollar pieces of equipment. Or in the case of Ukraine, it was take down 600,000 people's power um, over the course of a day. And so once in, you're, you're finding people who know how to use sophisticated control systems and know how to use industrial equipment for, for you know, pretty powerfully. Um, in, in, there was a German case where a steel mill was actually taken down, the control system was taken over, and the, and the mill actually burned itself up um, because, because someone got in with a phishing scheme and, and then changed the control system. So I think that those are, are two of the lessons. I think the third lesson is probably that uh, there's a Brandeis quotation. It's something like, sunshine is the best disinfectant. And I think it's important in the case of industrial security and, and the industrial IoT that these hacks become public. Um, and, and maybe not right away, uh, because there are concerns about making these uh, vulnerabilities, exposing these vulnerabilities, and then allowing them to happen in a sort of cascading way across the world. But the U.S. government has decided to organize a group that focuses on cybersecurity in industrials to say, look, if we find vulnerabilities, we are going to work with the companies who have those vulnerabilities for, it's, it's a period of, of something like 45 days. And if we can fix it in the 45 days, we'll publish a patch. If we can't fix it in those 45 days, we're still going to expose to the world that this is a problem. And I think that they use that, that's sort of the concept of sunshine as the disinfectant, to really create some incentive for those companies to, to do something about it. Alfred Berkeley, is this protecting these things, uh, corporate data, credit card information at, at uh, department stores, et cetera, is that the job of that corporation? Is it the job of the U.S. government? Because cyberspace has been largely free of government intervention. That's why it's so successful. Well, I think that as, a, as the world gets more uh, integrated and, and interconnected, there is a role for government, and there's a role for private sector. I spent 11 years working on this public-private partnership issue uh, on a federal advisory committee, and it's very, very difficult because it overlaps with regulation. It overlaps with the plaintiff's bar and lawsuits. It's not a simple issue. That being said, the technology itself is evolving, and one way of looking at what has to happen is that a couple of additional layers to the well-known ISO stack, the, the, the dis description of the way computing works, starting with a chip at the bottom and applications at the top, uh, needs to evolve. There needs to be a, a structured security layer in there. And above, at the very top, there needs to be structured languages that are being used to describe the information that's coming through the system. Chips are getting powerful enough now that we're on the verge of being able to get what a password was originally supposed to give you, which was security. Passwords were installed way up in that stack I referred to. You're now going to be able to have passwords equivalent, much lower in the stack, and you're going to be able to have essentially a white-labeled internet where people, where you only deal with people you already know, and a blacklisting lab, uh, internet where you're dealing with the open public. So you're going to get some th changes in the technology towards solving these problems, but it's going to take a lot of investment and a lot of cooperation. Let's come back to energy. We're talking about a decentralized world where rather than a few small power plants, people are making energy, Dave Mount, uh, on their rooftop. How is that better than fossil fuels and is it more vulnerable to attack? 
So that decentralized energy picture has a number of benefits. I think it is more sustainable, so there's lower emissions. It's easier to turn on and off at a small scale. So you, you can turn it on and off in percentages of a home as opposed to in, in 100,000 person increments. So I think that it is safer, it's theoretically more reliable, and theoretically more secure because the, the vulnerability of the grid comes at communication nodes. And right now, again, there are 7,000 power plants in the United States. Each one of them has a, the, a, a generating capacity to serve hundreds of thousands of homes, typically. If one of those gets taken out, hundreds of thousands of homes go, go out as well. So the idea is that if you've got millions of solar panels or millions of batteries that are powering people's cars or tens of millions of small micro generators or hundreds of thousands of wind turbines, if one of them fails, the consequence of that failure is much smaller. Uh, so I think there is a resilience in a more decentralized grid that has certain definite benefits. General Alexander, what are the benefits moving away from fossil fuels? You've heard Al Gore give a presentation recently about this. There's a security aspect. So what are the dimensions of moving from fossil fuels to cleaner, and what we heard Dave just said, uh, more secure energy? I, I think it's something that we, uh, the people in this room, our generation should leave for the future generations. When you look at, I, I was impressed. I saw a, a presentation from uh, former Vice President Al Gore on uh, climate, and it was amazing to see the damage that's being uh, that's occurring, and what we can do for solar power and renewable energy to turn that around. We've got to do that, and in doing that, when you think about it, where the major power companies like PG&E and others can actually come into play is on creating what Dave was uh, referring to, but I'll take it one step further, a mesh network where solar panels around the country can be used to give us sustainable power with other forms of energy in a way that we've never done before. That's where it's all gonna go. Now the question is, do we lead, follow, or get out of the way? And you know, I think what uh, Dixon Wright is doing with Orange Button with L and trying to push that solar thing is absolutely the right way to go. We ought to lead, get small businesses in there, help do this. It's, it saves the future for my grandchildren, for our grandchildren, and it's something that we ought to do. I'd like to talk about your, uh, your own uh, security, what you do in your life, and can suggest to people who have uh, solar panels at home. Dave Mount, you have a very connected life. Uh, what do you do to protect your own security uh, and devices, and what suggestions would you have to other people? So in that connected life, we do have an Amazon Alexa that we, we talk to a lot. And my, my four-year-old son knows how to call up the Star Wars theme song on the Amazon Alexa. It's his, his favorite thing to do. Uh, we have pr programmable thermostats. We have a doorbell that has a camera on it. Um, and we live a life that is just that is online. Uh, in order to protect that, we do have LifeLock, which is a security program that monitors credit agencies to, to make sure that it knows when personal identifying information is out there. We ha I use two-factor authentication everywhere I can, which means when I plug in my password on a website, I typically get a text message from that service confirming that I have my phone with me and putting in a secondary password, and I, and I use that. We also use a password manager program that recommends and can sometimes in an automated way change my passwords about once every six months. So we definitely have decided to just kind of put everything online. We're doing everything we can to, um, to manage the security online, but at the same time, we get notes every once in a while from a website that my password may have been compromised, and I just view that as, as the cost of having the benefits of everything else. We're coming to the end. I want to bring it back to climate. Uh, earlier, General uh, Alexander framed climate as a bit of an intergenerational moral issue. So, Alfred Berkeley, uh, what do you think is the most important thing to move away from fossil fuels to get to that clean energy future that General described? I think that we need, in addition to the uh, obvious solar and wind, we need baseload hydro. And uh, the technology's coming along to make that work. No dams, free river flow, and the power is enormous, and it's coming. Dave Mount, you look at lots of different technologies. What's most exciting to you about moving to that clean energy future to secure the climate and get away from fossil fuels? Sure. I, I have a very exciting vision in my mind of a connected grid that is powered by solar, powered by wind, taking power into people's homes, powering battery packs, and then being used to power electric vehicles, 
maybe electric vehicles that drive themselves. And I think that when, when you have an electric vehicle in your home that becomes a great battery store and sort of takes the intermittency and challenges of what happens when the clouds go over the sky uh, out of the equation. And I think that, I, I hope that that seems obvious to us 20 years from now and that that's where we're headed. General Alexander, a lot of the threats we've been talking about, hackers or terrorists, they have a face, they're visible and tangible. The climate threat is a little more abstract and it's far away. It's harder for people to see the villain, see the enemy. So how do you suggest making people understand the urgency of climate and then how to get at it? Look at the um, movement and warming of the oceans, the numbers and the, the strength of the storms that are hitting and the impact on our world. Um, these are life-ending events if we don't get our hands around it in 100 years because all the species that we know are either moving to the poles or dying. And so I think what we're talking about in terms of climate change and what we can do with renewable energies addresses that issue. And again, I think, you know, I'm not political, uh, but I was impressed by what former Vice President Gore put out in his program. Now, a fact check on everything would be great, get everything 100% exactly right, but that shows you the issues that we face. And I do think forums like this to use renewable energy and connect them, create a super grid, a super smart grid that ties all that together is part of our future and is something that we should welcome. Greg Dalton has been talking about the Internet of Things with retired Army General Keith Alexander, former head of the National Security Agency, Alfred Berkeley, director of the World Economic Forum and co-author of The New Paradigm for Cybersecurity, and Dave Mount, partner in the Green Growth Fund of the venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins Caulfield & Byers. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Shen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our booker and associate producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. I'm Devin Strolovich, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.